0: Well, please remain standing and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to continue our study of these kingdom parables of Christ, those parables that he taught by the Sea of Galilee. And in this portion of those parables, he is speaking exclusively to his disciples So, beloved, I want to begin reading at verse 47 and read down through verse 50. If you would follow along with me, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon us. Now, Father, we come to the reading of your word, the preaching of it, the explanation of it. And we pray, Father, for accuracy. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray, O Lord, that you would give me the unction, the words, Lord, the the passion to carry such weighty truths to the hearts of your children. Father, that these would not just be facts, Lord, that are interesting and, Lord, uh, things to debate, but they would be convictions that they would shape Lord, our everyday living, oh God, teach us to feast upon your word, teach us to hide it in our hearts, teach us, oh Lord, that it is our meat and drink, and we will bless your name, amen, and beloved, begin reading at verse 47, again, Our Lord said, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers and the bad they threw away. And so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Oh, beloved, I continue this morning to impress upon you that precious doctrine of the mediatorial reign and rule of uh, Jesus Christ as the Lord's Messiah, as our Savior that he, his father, has granted to him a kingdom and our Lord is teaching his disciples about this kingdom, about the nature of this kingdom and what this kingdom is going to look like as it penetrates this world. And we still to this day need to learn these truths and accept them as they are and hide them away in our hearts so that we, like the disciples, can do his will and carry out his ministry and carry out the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. So let it be on earth. Let it be in our own lives. Let it be so in our relationships and all that we do and all that we put our hands to. Everywhere our feet takes us. Let us take our testimony of a saving God and a blessed Savior and the ruin of that sin brings to every person. Because that's exactly what sin does. Sin is destructive, it's ruinous, it destroys people, it destroys families, and it destroys countries. It always has, and it always will. Until our Lord comes to end time as we understand it and know it. The parable of the dragnet helps us understand this spiritual and universal sovereignty and ministry that our Lord rightfully has over this world. It's not something he assumed to himself. It was granted to him. It was appointed to him. And he assumed this glorious portion of that work at his resurrection where he was exalted and then seated at the Father's right hand. where the kingdom of God begins to to permeate effectually into the earth as, as Christ sent out his disciples, as he empowered them. Even more so than men are empowered today, he had granted unto them the ability to even bestow the Holy Spirit upon others during that first century, and to heal all kinds of diseases and sicknesses. He established this authority, and from that time on, From his disciples, the apostles, the minister, they have been laying on of hands. There has been a ministry. The church has been ministering, calling God's elect, calling sinners to Christ. Where there's confession of sin, where men and women are laying their sins down before the throne of God, before the cross of Christ, being cleansed by his blood and righteousness, being robed up and empowered to, to live a gospel-centered life. A life, beloved, that we all share not just in part, but that we know that we share in similar struggles. Maybe not in the exact same sins, but we know what it is to struggle with sin. We know what it's like to 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 bear the entanglements of sin. We all have them. And we know that we share this with all of our brothers and sisters and therefore we gather before the Lord's face every Lord's day if possible to celebrate his goodness and patience and mercy and how he continues to deliver us even when those sins seem to be snapping at our heels. And we celebrate the strength that our God gives to us in Christ. Now, all of this is important. Beloved, as we continue to examine and reflect upon this mediatorial reign of Christ and those moral duties and obligations that are ours in Christ, it is stressed, emphasized by the fact that there is coming a day, the reality of an appointed day whereby all men will receive a final judgment. The dragnet, very much like the wheat and the tares, speaks of this judgment, this separating of good and bad. The good being received as good and The implication is if the bad is thrown into that which is tormenting and horrible, that the good will receive quite the opposite of that, that which is joyful and glad. That's the logical implication. That's the reasonable connection to make. Even though the emphasis rests upon what happens to the wicked. I'm sure that most of us were not surprised, but I I think it's hard not to be astounded at the love of murder in this nation. It's, it's it's, It's hard. It's hard not to be staggered by the bloodthirstiness of so many good people. And yet, that's one of the reasons I read the text out of Revelation this morning. For those people that are guilty of murder, even in their hearts, unrepentant murder, are not going to heaven. They will be condemned on the day that I am setting before you called judgment day. The reality of judgment beloved needs to be greater today than I can remember than I can remember and I certainly can't beat my chest and claim to be old and wise and whatnot, but nevertheless, in my 30 years as a Christian, I've never seen a day better than to reaffirm the doctrine, the Christian dogma of judgment. Now, when I say Christian dogma, what do I mean? That The doctrine of final judgment is a Christian dogma. It's a doctrine that's established in the Christian church. It's an established doctrine. It's an established truth. It's a a truth that all Christian denominations have fundamentally understood since the beginning of the apostles. Since those days, the church has taught that there is coming a day of final judgment that all men will participate in. I could have, I guess, brought forth all kinds of interesting facts about the teaching of our Lord Jesus who taught more on the doctrine of hell than he ever did heaven. Now, and why? Was he someone that just delighted in wrath and fury? I don't think so. I don't think that can be supported. But it does seem to indicate that the day in which our Lord preached required it. To shake men and women from their lethargy, And the coldness in their sins, the love of their sins. you, you, You see, beloved, if there's anything needed in our day and time, it's the slap in the face of judgment day. The reminder that all men are going to stand before this appointed judge, Jesus Christ, and give an account For all their deeds. Our Lord has just finished teaching us in chapter 12 of Matthew that all of us are going to give an account for everything that comes out of our mouths. Well, in fact, turn back to Matthew 12. And, and I'm going to back up to verse 33 just to, to gain the context here, but I think you're going to see it clearly. It says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And the good man brings out of his, tre- uh, of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus equates this heart, this reservoir that we all possess, uh, uh, this treasure of words. And what Jesus is helping us understand is that our words reflect the condition of our heart. If our hearts are evil, then things that come out of our mouth are going to reflect that evil heart. Now, it doesn't mean you take God's name in vain. It may just mean that you nonchalantly speak carelessly of religion, that you don't use your words to build one another up or to edify one another or to exalt the name of Christ, to be neutral and indifferent, might be more one's cup of tea. But nevertheless, what comes out of our mouth or doesn't come out of our mouth is going to condemn us. And Jesus clearly taught that there was going to be a day of judgment or, I like to say, a day of reckoning. I like to use the word reckoning because there are those who believe that when they leave this life, they have escaped punishment and accountability. But that is not true. See, that's not reality. Reality. When men escape justice in this life, they surely will meet justice in the next life. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that it is appointed unto man to die once and then judgment All men will face that general judgment after their death. This judgment that I'm referring to here is called the final judgment. It's the day that that public nature of the judgment. It's where that that pronouncement takes its official. Place. And there is the great separation forever and ever. And brothers and sisters, the text itself tells us that the the, the morality of this text by again pointing out there are good fish and bad fish. Now, Jesus just used the same idea talking about a tree, good trees and bad trees. The same idea here the good and the bad, the righteous and the wicked are the evil, the text says. There is going to be a separation, and this separation is going to stand upon moral grounds. Some will be judged according to the law of the covenant. What do I mean by that? Well, beloved, all men have a relationship to God's moral law. All men. All women. Those who are still in the family of Adam still are under the law as a covenant, a requirement. A requirement of what? Perfect obedience that's already been broken and violated. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3, if you're going to live by the law, you must live by the whole law. And you must keep it at every point. You can't violate the law at one point and still be moral. And then there are going to be those that stand under the conditioning of the law as a rule of grace a rule of grace still a rule but covered by grace these are the things that we call evangelical duties evangelical obedience this is that obedience that flows out of a regenerated new heart out of faith in Christ, out of a renewed passion and love for him, having been cleansed of our sins, having confessed our sins as sins, taking the responsibility to confess our sins, my sins, these are sins. Lord, forgive me for I have broken your law and I'm a lawbreaker. And cleanse me, it's not my mama's fault, it's not my daddy's fault, it's not my husband's fault, it's not my wife's fault, it's not my children's fault, it's not my parents' fault, it's my fault. And I need you to cleanse me and make me clean and robe me in a righteousness that's acceptable to the Father. And there are the ones, beloved, that Jesus is referring to here when he speaks of good fish. Because outside of that imputed righteousness of Christ, there is none good, no, not one, Paul says, Romans 3. And beloved, there is an appointed day. It's a a day that is just as fixed as the Lord's day has been fixed and appointed. Just as the Lord has appointed one day a week where his people would gather and celebrate and, 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 and worship him, there is a day appointed at the end of time when no one knows. And that is on purpose that none of us would know that day and hour so that we might all every day get up and pray for the, the strength to maintain Christian diligence and to maintain that Christian passion and that zeal and that fervor for righteousness that Lord would keep us from cowardly ways, from the love of murder and hatred and all that is evil, that he would continue to bring us along the way and that he would, little by little, sometimes day by day, but mostly year by year, continue to refine us and shape us and mold us into the image of those beautiful sons and daughters over time. That God has appointed a day, brothers and sisters, in which he will come and judge the world in righteousness by his son, Jesus Christ. And that is what Jesus is teaching us here now, what are some of these presuppositions? That is, how do we fill our heads? How do we fill our hearts so that we might take these truths and make practical use of them? Well, beloved, it's not that we would have this 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 weight of of you know uh, of uh, this dark judgment. Bearing upon our back so that we can't smile, so that we can't praise his name, so that we can't encourage our brothers and sisters, that's that's missing it. Because like I've already stated, where the reality of the wicked is there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in a place of fiery Uh, The uh, place called the furnace of fire is the opposite for the righteous and it should be the longing of all of our hearts to experience, to experience. But these presuppositions are important because the only illustration that I, as I thought through this different ways is that of a child. It truly is that of a child. It's the relationship that a parent has with a child. It's that loving, nurturing, coddling relationship. But at the same time, as they mature and they grow and they become big enough to teach, right, that there's, there's yes and no. And the discipline is not done in such a manner that the child becomes fearful of the parent, but that there is this nurturing, that the child can be disciplined and do what? Also flee to the parent and hug their neck because that's their refuge. It's love. It's love. It's not the fear that we should have in Christ to stand before this judgment. It's that that growing expectation that as I stand there and as the Lord lays out all my sin, I have the opportunity to say, yes, blessed is the name of Jesus who has covered all my iniquity. And I don't deserve to be here. But I am. I am a child of the living God by the righteousness imputed to me by Christ, by the faith that I have put in him that he is the alone answer to my sin and no one else. That we as righteous sons and daughters will give testimony on that day. We will. And just as the wicked will argue with the Lord and they will. They will seek to justify themselves. Lord, did we not do great things in your name? And the Lord will hear them out and he will condemn them still. And he will put an end to the argument. He will put it to rest as the judge that is final. Just as our testimony will be heard for all to hear. How many of us will say on that day, "Oh Lord, I was blind, but now I see in Christ. I was dead in my sins. I, I know men and, and men and some women that have dramatic testimonies of being delivered out of the great darkness. Great darkness, dark, evil darkness. And we will all hear them speak of the saving power of Christ. And we will all be praising the Lord with them for their deliverance and that power And yes, beloved, we will too give an answer for the words we speak, except we will give an answer as a rule of law in grace to receive our rewards. There will be rewards. There's an encouragement for all of us to do well and to do well constantly and consistently and to exceed at doing well. Because our God is gracious and he's good and he wants to reward those who work the hardest at bringing him the most glory so that you might take those rewards as those in heaven that we read in John and do what? Lay them back at the feet of Christ who rightly deserves it. But what a blessing you will have to lay those rewards at his feet if you keep this doctrine in your mind and heart. Don't forget it. This doctrine must season all that we do. Judgment Day is going to be a day just like any other appointed day. It is a fact. It is coming. It will come, and it will. It is as sure as today is today that we work on this presupposition of this judgment day so that it affects the way we talk to one another so that it governs how we uh, work with one another, how we're even willing to correct one another. Beloved, if there is a judgment day, how can correcting someone lovingly be wrong? how can preaching on judgment be harsh if this day is a real day that is that is coming how is it harsh to preach on it how is it harsh to teach people that they will stand before god and give an account to jesus christ how is it harsh and unloving to teach somebody that they too must give an account for the words that come out of their mouths for the things they do, if that is going to happen. And well, brothers and sisters, this judgment presupposes that Christ is certainly not a myth. But one that truly has been granted the power and the authority to render judgment. And there's going to be a lot of people that tell you, well, I don't believe in Jesus, and therefore I don't believe in judgment. They can say that, and they're lying. And the reason they're lying is because their conscience bears witness to right and wrong. Romans chapter 2, verse 15. The conscience bears a testimony to all things that we do, whether good or whether evil. When we do something good, it approves of it. When we do something evil and sinful, it disapproves of it. It condemns us. That's why it's such a great evil to turn your back on your conscience and to harden it or to wound it. Sometimes... When sin has participated in for so long under certain conditions, you can wound your conscience beyond full repair, that you'll always struggle with it, more so than normal. And so you want to be careful of that, what the Puritans called deputy, that moral deputy that all men and women possess Well, let's look at some passages of Scripture. Beloved, as we think about these things, I want to turn to Acts 17. You think about the preaching of the gospel. In Acts 17... Verse thirty-one. Even Paul, when he's just doing apologetic work, he's he's doing evangelism. He comes to this Areopagus. He he sits before these philosophers of that day and that time. And he even says that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead, that Paul in his evangelism doesn't assume neutral ground on this matter, He warns his listeners, don't be too callous to the Christian faith because all men are going to give an account for their own righteousness on this appointed day. They scoff at Jesus Christ. What does Paul say? That's the one that God has appointed to judge you, Jesus, and you're scoffing at him. You know, interestingly enough, all of this, this blasphemy, taking the name of Jesus in vain. Guess who's going to render judgment on that day? The man that God has appointed, Jesus Christ. That Jesus stands on the highest authority of heaven and earth to render this judgment for the purpose of righteousness to render justice. And he will do so, beloved. And he will do so. John chapter 5, verse 27, that God had given him authority to execute judgment Because he is the son of man. Uh, Beloved, without a doubt, what the scriptures teach, this Christian dogma, this established truth, is that all men will stand before God and God will judge them with Christ being their judge. One more passage of Scripture, and we'll look at some application. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. You see, in, begin in verse 31, it's a long text of Scripture. And let me begin reading at verse 41. You can read this, put, put this down in your notes. You can go back, prayerfully read it, take notes on it. Um, verse 41 is the end, it's the summary of it. And, and notice what he says. He says, and then he will also say to those on his left. Now, the, the left represents the, the, the bad fish, Right? In this text, the goats, the evil, those who are the evil ones. The evil ones are those who rest in their own righteousness. And so, therefore, they stand before God according to their own works, according to their own words, according to their own righteousness, and they will give an account. And so, there will be justice rendered to that individual, to that person. That's who the evil person is. He's evil because he has not rested in Christ for his righteousness. So he says, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Why the devil and his angels? Because they are the original sinners. They are the original unrighteous ones, okay? For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Now, notice all of these are duties. These are obligations. These are moral things to aid the needy. Is a moral work. It's a moral duty as, as we are able to, right? Verse 44 says, Then they themselves will also answer. Now notice, here's the rebuttal. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? What they're saying is, Lord, we would have most certainly took care of you. We don't have a problem with you, Lord. We're all about you. And what does Jesus reveal? And then he will answer them Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. What a revelation! What a revelation! Wait a minute, Lord, we're all about Jesus, but we're not all about Jesus' people. Well, all about Jesus. But we're not all about being inconvenienced. I mean, we would certainly pick Jesus up if he was hitchhiking on the side of the road. I mean, we'd be glad to share a meal or buy him a, you know, a valued meal. I mean, we'd be glad to do that. But not so much as people. And, and Jesus corrects him and says, See, you, you, you don't know the scriptures, because the scriptures teach that we are all part and members of one another, that we are part of one body. Jesus is the head. What you do to the body affects the head. The same thing Jesus told Paul on the road to Damascus. When Paul was in his fervor going to persecute the church more than he had already been doing, and Jesus said, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Again, teaching us, showing us that the church is an organic society it's not a club it's not the YMCA it's the body of Christ it's the place where Christ is this is where Christ reigns and rules in a very special way and Jesus goes on to tell them in verse 46 is these will go away that is these who are wrong these who got it wrong, these who did not understand me, did not understand the church. They didn't understand their moral obligations, nor did they seek to carry out these obligations. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Mama, my, my. Look, look at Mark nine. Okay, toward the end of the chapter, let's start. Let's start at um verse 42. Now I want you to listen to these words. As whoever causes one of these little ones who believe uh who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck and been cast into the sea. For Okay, so notice, notice the, the statement. If, if the way you act causes my little ones to stumble in following me, that is in your immorality, the way you carry yourself, the things you say, the things you promote, the things you're given to, Causes my little one who believes in me to stumble. Notice what he says. It's better that you had never been born. It's better that you never existed. You have a millstone hung around your neck and cast into the sea or the darkest of the sea. The depth of the sea. Not existing. Now notice what he says. So he gives now this counsel. Whoever, uh, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have your two hands and to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire where the worm, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than having your two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone shall be salted with fire. And I'll just stop there. Here's my application for you. And I can testify to this time and time and time and time again as a counselor. people come and they come seeking spiritual advice and counsel and help because typically they've been caught in some sin or in some way their sin has caught up to them and there's consequences for them, driving them to seek help. It happens, doesn't it? Cause we try to fight it. We try to deal with it and we, we, we either don't know how or we're too loose with it and we're We're overcome when they come and begin to open up and begin to lay these things out, and then there's advice given, you say you know there's brokenness, there's tears there's you know i I've heard this numerous times, I'm willing to do anything to have my integrity back, to have my dignity back to to have my name back, my character my wife, my husband, to, to gain the respect of my children. I mean, this is, the, this is what, what it looks like when we're devastated by our sin, right? And then you open up the Word of God and you begin to make this application. Okay, well, if your hand causes you to sin, let's, let's amputate it, figuratively, of course. We don't amputate any hands in the pastoral office. But figuratively means we need to deal radically with it. We need to deal really with it. The offending member. And there have been times when I've told people, I said, you know, you know, I think you need to leave this job. There's too much temptation there, but I make lots of money. But you just confessed it's a problem. I don't think I can do that. But you just confessed that this is part of the problem. You should amputate this portion of your life if you are serious about removing the offense so that you miss hell. And you know, brothers and sisters, I've had very little success giving that advice. Or even telling someone who's dating someone, hey, um, what do you think? And they come in for some counseling, kind of pre, pre-marriage, pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-marriage. And you kind of start working on some things, and then kind of, finally you kind of, you, you say, I'm not sure this is the route you need to take. Oh, no, this is one for me. Brothers and sisters, here's the point. There is a day of judgment coming. I'm going to give an account. You're going to give an account. We have to live under the reality of that truth, that dogma. Jesus is teaching it as part of the kingdom of heaven. There's going to be a sorting of good and bad. There's going to be a a picking up and putting away. There's going to be those who are established in glory and righteousness, and then there are going to be those that are cast off into what is called that lake of fire. Do you believe that? Because if you do, you would take Jesus's counsel here in Mark 9 seriously. How do I amputate this offense? What do I need to do? What do I need to augment in myself or even in my life that is keeping me stumbling in this sin that I need to get rid of? That's how real judgment day is. And Jesus uses it in his counseling. He says, wait a minute. Don't you understand that if you have these kinds of offenses, you need to deal radically and seriously with them or you will not miss hell. You'll bust it wide open. And I'm sure they were like, what? Just like we are. Just like the people that you'll go talk to after today. What? Who believes that? Christians. Christians. Now listen. There's a movement and have been for about 20 years of, 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 of putting away the doctrine of eternal judgment with what is called annihilationism didn't do away with judgment they said no there's going to be a judgment but god is too gracious to punish one forever and ever therefore they will be consumed in the fiery judgment never to exist again I just read Mark 9, where Jesus says, where the fire's never quenched and the worm never dies. What's the purpose of the worm never dying and the firing never being quenched? You see, beloved, on resurrection day, when Jesus comes back, there are gonna be two tops of bodies raised out of the ground. There are gonna be glorified bodies. They belong to the Righteous. And then there's going to be indestructible bodies, and they will belong to the wicked. And these indestructible bodies will be made to endure eternal punishment and feel the pain. It's not just the feeling of the pain. It's the psychological aspect of it. For eternity, they will bear their own guilt of turning their backs on Christ, mocking him, taking his name in vain, mocking the Lord's day, mocking Christian worship, mocking life, mocking all of those things that, well, God loves. They will bear that psychological guilt forever and ever and ever and ever. What's the purpose of this day of judgment? Well, twofold. The purpose is to warn the sinful, but encourage the righteous. We've warned the sinful, let's encourage the righteous. Two things encouraging the righteous. Number one, beloved, this world is going to come to an end. And here's what I mean by that your suffering will be over. Your your physical suffering, your arthritis, the cancer, the diabetes the stress, the anxiety, all of that will be done. And you will receive a glorified body that is capable of the full enjoyment of satisfaction of being in the presence of God in Christ forever. The second aspect of it is to never sin again. That this glorified body will be immutable unlike the first body that was changeable we fell in Adam this glorified body will be unchangeable you will not ever fall again and you will never sin again you will never sin against your your Lord ever again You will never, ever, ever, ever think an unbecoming thought. You're never, ever going to think, I'm too tired to pray. You're never going to think any of those things again. Now, that has to be a song to you if you love the Lord. You're never, ever going to offend him again. And so, therefore, we long for that day. We long for it in the sense that we're okay with it. Yes, come, come, Lord Jesus, come. You came the first time to give us grace and you come the next time, the last time to bring judgment and reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, as we leave today, as we watch the world in some sinful sense burn itself down, we take delight in knowing that our Lord is in charge, in control. And in one sense, taking notes. Because when we stand before the Lord, the book of Revelation says, and the books are gonna be opened up. The books, now, does the Lord need a book? But what a figure. The books will be opened and everything's right there. But if you're here this morning and you have found Christ, there's no worries. You're going to get to give that testimony. And yes, they're going to lay your sins down before you, but you are going to have the opportunity to rejoice in Christ who washed them away. You're going to get a chance to give testimony. You know, that's why we give testimony in the church. We're kind of getting prepared, aren't we? That's why we're not afraid to give praise to God. We're just preparing ourselves for glory. There's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing shy. There should be anything shy about us giving praise to the Lord. Beloved, don't live your life like there is no judgment day. That would be a mistake. And it's going to be one you can't afford to pay except through eternity. Let's pray. Now, Father, we rejoice that you are wise enough to instruct us in the ways we need to go. And Father, that you have given us in Christ this teaching of that final day of judgment where Christ will come and he will sort one from another and that we will either be on his right or on his left. We will either be good or bad. We'll either be righteous or evil. And, Father, the remedy to that is to put our faith and trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you have appointed that day to make those judgments. And we rest in him and trust in him, Lord, that we have, are, are, are fully clothed in his righteousness, in his perfect keeping of the law. And, Father, we know we struggle. We know we stumble. But, Lord, our stumbling is in Christ, and, Lord, we, we are ready to beg for forgiveness. We're ready to confess our sins. We're ready, O oh Lord, to amend our ways in Christ before you, O oh Lord, because we do not want to be on the wrong side. We are thankful, O oh Lord, for your love and for you providing a way for us to be, Lord, on your right, to be labeled good, to be labeled righteous, Lord, Because that's all about your mercy. It's all about your grace. It's not about what we deserve, Lord, because we know what we deserve. And yet, on that great day, we will have the opportunity to speak of our Lord's grace and mercy and saving power. Lord, we ask that you would even prepare us now in our lives to give testimony to such wonderful truths. Everywhere we go, oh, Lord, let us remember that there are books and there's a record of the things we do and the things we say. When no one's looking, no one's watching. Lord, help us to bear in those moments up with strength. Lord, keep us and hold on to us. and Lord, when we fall, cleanse us and forgive us. Cleanse our minds, our hearts, Lord, all that we are, and help us, O Lord, to walk in your ways. Lord, be our strength as you are our righteousness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.